Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Amit Goyal. Welcome back to the Cardio Obstetrics series, developed in collaboration with Women Heart. Now, this one's a real treat, where CardioNerd's ambassadors, Drs. Natalie Stokes and Sonia Shaw, get to meet CardioNerd's legends and mentors, Drs. Nanette Wenger and Sharon Hayes. In this Narratives style discussion, we learn about Dr. Wenger's and Dr. Hayes' professional and personal journeys, how they became such leaders and advocates for women's cardiovascular health. Remember, CardioNerd's is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Friends, before we dive into this powerful discussion, I want to share a story. As some of you know, I recently began interventional cardiology training, and it's been just amazing. But on this particular day, we were down a couple of fellows, and so I was particularly busy and between cases when I was asked to help with a consent for a case. Ugh. I thought, not now. But it had to be done, so I ran up to the floors, grabbed a computer, and reeled it into the room, feeling annoyed at having to do this. Because, well, we're all human, after all. Hi, Miss So-and-so. You're scheduled for this procedure later today. Has someone gone over it with you? I asked of her. Our first time meeting. Why, yes, doctor, they have, she said. Great. This is the indication. Here are the benefits, risks, and alternatives. Would you please sign here? The whole time, I was thinking I might still make it to lunch. But as I was placing the signature pad back on its Velcro on the side of the computer, I noticed this beautiful piece of artwork, clearly still in progress at her bedside. I was drawn to the rich colors and asked her about it. This is mandala art, she explained. And then she told me how artwork was a source of great strength for her through everything she was going through medically. It turns out she was also a graphic designer in a formal life, That explained her decidedly beautiful calligraphy that was her signature. Then, as I began wheeling the computer away from her bed, I noticed a string instrument case. Intrigued, I asked her about that too. This is my mandolin, she explained, now with a glimmer in her eyes. As a lover of fall music, I had to ask, Ma'am, would you consider showing it to me? Well, of course, doctor, if you have the time. And for this, I definitely had the time. So I handed her the instrument, itself a piece of art and she spent a couple of seconds tuning it. Before I knew it, she began strumming the instrument, confidently. She's clearly done this before, and the room was filled with her beautiful music. As I got lost in her tunes, I went from seeing her as a lady with some structural problem that needed fixing, to a talented artist, a graphic designer, an expert musician. Just imagine the life she's lived in all her decades, the stories she must have to tell. Wow, I thought. What an honor it felt to play a small part in her care. So, you know, I walked in annoyed, rushed, maybe even a little apathetic and embarrassed to say, but I walked out feeling honored, inspired, and grateful for the opportunity of meeting this amazing person. She gave me permission to share the story and her music with you. So as I play it for you, join me in getting lost in her tunes and feeling the joy and privilege it is to take care of our extraordinary patients. And to our dear patient, who I know will be listening, this is for you. Hi, 
Hey, cardio nerds, we are back to continue our conversation where we left off. In the last episode, we were joined by three incredible women heart champions in our discussion about women's cardiovascular health and advocacy. Today, I'm joined by my cardio obstetrics series co-chair, Sonia Shaw, as we get to learn more from these wonderful women. As fellows in training with an interest in women's cardiovascular health, Natalie and I are so excited to interview Dr. Wenger and Dr. Hayes about their career and about advocacy and healthcare. So to open up the conversation, and either of you can speak to this first, can you tell us a little bit about how you two met and what your relationship has meant? I will start because I may remember the meet and the wanting to meet Dr. Wenger first. When I was in training, I didn't know that I wanted to do heart disease in women. I was more an echocardiographer early on. But as the late 80s and early 90s came about, and I recognized when I was sitting in my office with a female patient compared to a male patient that I just had so much less evidence to go about diagnosing or treating. And sometimes when I followed the things that I had learned or what was in the literature, it wasn't working. And so then you start looking for how can I be a better doctor and realizing there wasn't a lot out there, but what was, was Dr. Nanette Wenger. If there was going to be something to say about this. So even before I met her, I felt she had blazed a path because she was recognizing and had recognized far earlier than I because of her maturity as a researcher and academician, that it was validating to me. Because I think if you're frustrated and you feel like maybe I'm the only one frustrated by this problem, I must be part of the problem. And so in that sense, first meeting Nanette Wenger was really around the time that Women Heart was founded, which was back in the late 90s. I had just founded our Women's Heart Clinic at Mayo Clinic in 1998. And at almost the exact same time, Women Heart had been founded over the prior year, unbeknownst to me. And then Dr. Wenger was incredibly supportive of Women Heart and the founders, and we met through them. Do you remember it any differently, Nanette? We met so many times over the years in so many places that it begins to blur. But Women Heart has been a very important interface for women cardiologists because so many of us have worked on the Women's Advisory Committee and worked with the Women Heart Champions. But the leader of the education in Women Heart has been Sharon Hayes. And I expect everyone has looked up to Sharon because of the course that was done at Mayo. And it was a very intensive effort at educating women who had their own heart disease and who had come through their own challenges, but teaching them how to become advocates, how to support other women, and forming an organization that I think is unique worldwide. We had a program like that in Georgia for the Southeastern region, and I began to realize how much effort goes into a program like that in terms of preparing, in terms of educating the Women Heart Champions who will become leaders and advocates and supporters of other women with heart disease and how important this type of education is. So I think the answer there is neither one of us remembers exactly the first time we met in person, (laughs) because it was 25 years ago. But I do think that the ways that I've been able to learn from Nanette, as well as to work with kind of shoulder to shoulder on various things and partner with her, whether it's at a research level, an advocacy level, or even patient care level has been just incredibly gratifying. 
one of my earliest memories, and it was sitting on the Scientific Advisory Council, and I was still quite junior, but there would be this lively conversation, sometimes a bit heated, about what to do about a problem. So it's how the organization was going to go, what is the policy statement we should have, how are we going to engage patients, and it would go on for five or 10 minutes, and then that would wait for a pause. And she would say two sentences that basically summarize the whole thing. And everybody wanted to go like what she said. And that is a gift that Nanette has. She incredibly synthesizes really complex, both clinical topics, but as well as bringing people together so that they can move forward. And I think that is something I have really tried to learn and emulate from her is she listens as well as she speaks and writes, which is a gift. The other thing too, and I think I want to emphasize this to our cardio nerds, is that all of this is not solely professional because Sharon and I have been involved in each other's family life. She has followed my children and grandchildren. I have followed her children and her new grandchild. So it becomes a very different depth as well. We are professional friends and we are personal friends and we value both friendships. I fondly remember when I was in Atlanta a few years back, pre-pandemic, and Nanette invited me to have breakfast with her and sitting in the Grady Hospital cafeteria with our Grady Hospital coffee. And I just felt like I was being entertained at the Four Seasons, honestly, because I got to have breakfast where Nanette lived and worked, essentially, and got to see her amazing clinic. So I do think it is those personal opportunities to connect. And I think for the cardio nerds, as they're not all going to want to do heart disease in women or valves, they may not even have a niche right now that they know about, but find your people. Because one of the things for a new subspecialty like heart disease in women, where we're all kind of finding our way, often it was mainly women. There were a few men who were involved in this, but we were often the voice in the wilderness at our organizations. We were the ones who were saying, hey, I have this idea, or hey, I think we should do this, or I'm observing this. And we were having to explain it over and over again to our colleagues who maybe didn't see the importance or we weren't explaining it. And Women Heart did facilitate a meeting of minds with a common interest that lifted a lot of us up because it gave us, when we knew that somebody at UCSF or at Emory or at NYU was seeing the same things and was trying to advance them. And that's where some of these networking or volunteer opportunities actually turn out to be incredibly beneficial to the individual. That may not be why you did it. You did it for service or you did it for whatever. But I've heard so many, particularly women, and it's true, I don't have time to do something. And I would just say that sometimes volunteering for an organization that is very aligned with your work or passion, it reaps many benefits and is worth the time. And I think also, I've said this many times, that no matter how busy you are, so many people have given to you that you have an opportunity and an obligation to give back. It may be very modest at the beginning, and obviously it will grow with time. But think twice before saying no to a volunteer opportunity. Think twice. Awesome. That's wonderful. You both clearly have a very special bond and that's great advice, Dr. Winger and Dr. Hayes. So let's start off from the beginning. Take us back. When did you first realize your interest in cardiology and what first drew your attention to women's cardiovascular health? Maybe we can start with Dr. Winger. Again, in medical school, 
Mine was the fifth class of women at the Harvard Medical School. And as many of you may know, in their ultimate wisdom, the Board of Overseers of Harvard University decided that the women had to be in the medical school for 10 years before they were officially recognized in the university charter. So we were on probation until the year my class graduated. Because of that, we couldn't get university happy. So the men lived in the dormitory under house rules, and the women lived in apartments in town. And I think because of this, the women had a special bond, the 10 women who were in my class. But I have to give enormous credit to the men in my class, because they welcomed us literally with open arms. They made us feel as if we were part of the class. We never felt as if we were interlopers. And of course, they were part of the experiment as well. But when I learned about heart disease in medical school, this was heart disease in men for the coronary disease. We learned a lot about rheumatic heart disease in women because the women with their mitral stenosis, et cetera. But the coronary disease was solely men. And then when I started my training at the Mount Sinai Hospital, again, the same issue. And I raised the question But, you know, as a trainee, you ask the questions and you're told you'll learn later. When I started as faculty, my first NIH grant was the Coronary Drug Project that was led by the phenomenal Jeremiah Stamler. And I got onto a writing committee. I think they expected me to be the secretary. They didn't realize that I couldn't type. But I got on the writing committee with some of the best writers who were communicating to the medical community what was not good about the way we were treating coronary disease in men with hormones, with et cetera. But when I asked Dr. Stamler, why are you studying this only in men? He shrugged his shoulders and he said, the women are too complex. That was it. And I expect that was an excuse over time. And as I advanced through the early years of my career, I raised again and again with the American Heart Association, with the American College of Cardiology, what about the women? Because I was seeing women with coronary disease in my clinic, and they were sick, and they were dying. And I had no information except for the data from the men. And I expect I nagged at the NHLBI for so long that they gave us a workshop. And typically, when you go from a workshop to a conference, it's a year and sometimes two. This was six years from the workshop to the conference. But we had the conference in 1992. And when the paper came out in the New England Journal, I think this was the first time in a major medical journal that we saw the apposition of coronary heart disease in women. And this, I expect, enrolled so many men and women, in my vision, that people began to query and to investigate. And it just took off from there. So for me, I had a very different experience in medical school. And I think for a similar experiment, so I went to Northwestern. And at the time, our class, way before current demographics, almost 50% women, I thought that was normal. There was a woman cardiothoracic surgeon at Northwestern at the time. I was on rotations, my sub-internship. There was one guy. He was the second year resident and the rest were women. So I was in a different kind of bubble until I got to Mayo Clinic as a medicine resident where only about 10% of the residents were women. 
And so that's a whole nother story about that paradigm shift in my mind. All of a sudden, I was very much made aware that I was a woman. That gave me advantages and obviously some disadvantages. I loved cardiology. It was my very first rotation as a medicine resident. And back then it was sort of a six month block of cardiology plus the ICUs all at once. And so it was a very intense six months. They don't do it anymore that way, but it was my first rotation. So I loved it, but I saw the life of the CCU fellows, which is the main one. And they were on call every other night for a month. So I said, that's not something I would want to do because you as an inpatient medicine resident, particularly back then, you didn't see that people had outpatient practices. You didn't see the people who were doing echoes. And so I said, this is so exciting. This is really cool, but I don't see myself as on call every other night at a month at a time, which obviously wasn't the real life, but that was the lens. I went through all of cardiology and I'm a very positive person, but there wasn't really anything else that I liked as well. But by that time I was married, I had married a cardiologist. So I tried to like other things really hard because in my mindset, I should not be in the same specialty. How would we ever be hired? I was being really practical. So I tried to make myself like GI, they have procedures too. But I circled back to cardiology and that was obviously because I came to the conclusion, why should I not do what I want to do just because he got there first? That was how I justified it. So I trained in cardiology. I really liked echocardiography. I spent an extra year doing that. And really for the first decade, that was my focus was imaging. That's what I spoke on. That was what my research was on. It was in that time when we were really learning about hemodynamics and what Doppler could do. And it was very exciting. But as I was saying earlier in this talk, in my clinical practice, I was certainly seeing and then reading what Nanette and her colleagues were writing that validated what I was seeing. And so at the time, the chair of cardiology at Mayo, Jamil Tajik, who had been my chair in the Echo Lab, he was very supportive of starting a women's heart program, somewhat for clinical, but largely so we could consolidate the experience and research and support our colleagues, because we were all realizing that maybe we weren't providing as excellent or certainly sex and gender-based care. And so unlike some friends who have had to battle uphill with leadership to start a women's heart clinical program, I did not. There were some pushback from those either colleagues who said, are you implying that I am not caring adequately for our women patients? So some were with great relief because obviously that was a time where we did not know much about vasospasm or microvascular disease or other things. And those were tough patients still are, oh, good. Sharon and her team are going to be taking care of those really tough patients. But you can gain a lot of anecdotal, even if it isn't clinical trial data, by sharing experiences of a group who concentrates their experience. The same practice makes perfect in the cath lab and the echo lab, but also as clinicians who are seeing patterns of presentation of patients over and over again. And as I said, the start of our clinic was also the start of Women Heart. And so I had the support locally, and then I had the inspiration and the fertilizer that came from being energized by people like Nanette and Rita Redberg at UCSF and Jennifer Merez at NYU, now at Northwell, and all of these folks who we were kind of seeing the same thing, but differently, and we could validate each other. And I think flash forward, so yes, I did a lot of education and research, but certainly the association and the recognition, which came out of Women Heart, of spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD being completely different than we were taught in terms of prevalence, in terms of diagnostic phase, and being able to be ready at that time to launch an area of inquiry that inspires me today, both the patients and the research. 
Well, again, we're seeing so many new syndromes. And when I think about what I learned in medical school and what I do in practice today, there is relatively modest overlap. And again, just as we're seeing the SCAD predominantly in younger and middle-aged women, we're seeing the Takasubo in the older women. And again, in retrospect, I realize that many of the women that I saw who were named myocardial infarction and who did amazingly well subsequently, possibly, probably were Takasubo. But I expect that for the cardio nerds, you're almost on the edge of a new era because when I started, there were almost no diagnostic tests. So we honed our skills on the history and the physical examination. And of course, there we had the electrocardiogram and we were good electrocardiographers and the chest x-ray. And then it took a while until we began to get the exercise testing and the echo, et cetera. But today I see the imaging just exploding and almost every one of the diseases disorders has something new that is added from an imaging study and from multiparametric imaging. The fact that I never learned imaging except as a faculty member, and now I have a number of fellows who are spending a year or two doing advanced imaging. Fortunately, in many institutions, the cardiologists are now predominant in the imaging area. And because we know the clinical, we know the clinical correlation, and we have the patients. So I think that so many of the new imaging techniques are a wonderful horizon. And the fascinating part, as I see them being reported in the literature, is that the message of sex-specific biology has come across. And we say, are the results similar for men and for women? And if not, why not? The characteristics of the plaque that are being now elucidated, are they the same for women and for men? And as a matter of fact, they're not. And what do they mean in terms of the clinical presentation? So that you have so many potential new horizons to explore. And then in the whole field of the omics, and I won't even try to go through them, you're going to have these at your fingertips. And they may give you some very specific insights in terms of disease in women. You have so many areas, so many roads that you can travel that I think it will be extremely exciting. I will say just kind of as an aside before we move on, I recently did a bit of a deep dive into SCAD just to kind of see what was out there and join the Vancouver conference and CPP and just blown away by how exciting it is. This is something that we now have all these registries, have all these patients, the research that's going on, like from the pathophysiology to the histology. It's something that my friend and I did a presentation on it and we were like, within one year, five years, 10 years, this is going to be completely transforming. And it's just really exciting to see. And Dr. Hayes, like when you started, this probably wasn't really an entity that was well described at all. And now people are spending their whole careers really moving this forward. I would just say that I talk about much of my career, personal advocacy and others is there was a lot of serendipity that was involved. And I think one of the things that I think that perhaps is one of the reasons for some of my success is I recognize the serendipity and to take that ride with it. Sometimes we're so busy or so focused that we don't recognize that what may look like a detour is actually an important road. 
And I will say that the SCAD was one of those where I was initially very skeptical. I mean, it was patients that came forward and said, what's Mayo Clinic doing research on SCAD? And I said, not really, even a big Mayo Clinic couldn't do it because it's so rare. I said that to a patient who then followed up saying, what about the 70 of us on Women Hearts online community that we've gotten together? And then you have to sit back. I could have sat back and say, well, I'm in the middle of putting on a conference or I have this other echo project that I'm doing. I must say I did sit with it for several months because I couldn't figure out how I would do research on a group of women who only had screen names, not even emails, addresses, and how you do that. But it's not like I did a knee-jerk reaction, but I do think that advice for cardio nerds, if we're going to have any, is don't reject out of hand either a clinical scenario that your patient tells you or an opportunity, because sometimes it'll get the juices going about something completely new, different, and fun and productive. And I feel like I've had a number of those opportunities over my career. That's actually fascinating that through patient advocacy, it was able to prompt research and development in the field. That's a really good example of that. Yeah. And to echo that, I just gave a presentation on microvascular disease, and it's just incredible the growth and research that we've seen just even within the past decade and all the new research and randomized control trials that are coming out. So it's clear that as Dr. Winger had said in a prior episode, there is nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. I would just hope that the cardio nerds generation will not reject out of hand these paradigm shifting observations like some of our colleagues did. As recently as a year ago, I had a granted older, considerably older male cardiologist who said, I don't really believe that microvascular, that's a thing. And I heard it a lot 10 years ago when Carl Peen and Noel Barry Mers were publishing all the wise things. There were a lot of skeptics who said, this is just junk science. And I didn't believe it or even necessarily understand it all, but I was seeing patients who I thought this fits the profile for patients. They were not crazy. They were not without heart disease. This may be something that we can use to help them. I think we can easily fall into that hubris that we know everything. That is one thing that Nanette has never done. Again, I expect that what's happened is that before it was a very complex, invasive cardiac catheterization laboratory, time-consuming diagnosis. And as people realize, perhaps this is not just a niche disease, the imagers came on board. And I expect that this research has blossomed simply because the imaging community bought into it and now says, we can do this non-invasively. We can study interventions for it. We can see if they're effective. And we're now exploring, in a great extent, the relationship between microvascular disease and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And that remains to me another frontier. But just think of, and I'm just thinking of the patients that I've seen in clinic within the last week, where one of my co-faculty members or one of my trainees is doing research. The field of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has changed enormously, and we may have a medication on the forefront. So that's something that was purely an invasive therapy may become a medical therapy. One of my colleagues is very interested in, in amyloid, and we're seeing a great deal of amyloid. Suddenly, it's important to recognize it and to subtype it and to say, we now have a therapy. It may not be a cure, but it will limit the progression. But 
the so-called incurable diseases are now becoming part of the mainstream and we have to recognize them because now we can do something about it. Dr. Wenger, what are your hopes for the future of women's cardiovascular health now? I think I've said this in a number of presentations, and I hope it will guide to some extent the research arena, because we have to realize that women's cardiovascular health is not solely a medical problem, that there are influences in the community, that there are socio-demographic influences, that there are political influences, that there are economic factors, that there are legal factors. And one of the interests that we are trying to promote at Emory within the university, not just within the medical center, is to say that sex and gender differences should be a part of everything that we explore, from the religious school to the law school to the business school, etc. And if we can use the sex and gender lens more broadly, I expect that we are going to have major advances in the medical care of women, and in my interest, in the cardiovascular care of women. Because we have to explore what is it that goes on in the community. It's been uncovered devastatingly with the COVID pandemic. And to realize that there's so many social determinants of health and disease and access to care and access to therapies. But some of these are cultural. Some of these are sadly legal barriers. And some of these are public policy, so that we have to get all of the people who are expert in this area on board to view this with a sex or gender lens. Hopefully, if we begin to have sex and gender medicine as part of the medical school curriculum, as it is in one or two schools, then people will have this kind of thought. And this, I expect, is going to expand our horizons. It's going to expand our research studies. You know, back in 2010, when the Institute of Medicine did that progress report on research in women's health, they said that we've done well for issues of morbidity and mortality, but we've not done much with health, wellness, life quality, etc. But how many times do you see those variables as an endpoint, even the secondary endpoint in the clinical trials. So that for my clinical trialist colleagues, we have to get some of this into the clinical trial data because when we address personalized medicine, we have to realize what it is that our patients want. And the issues of health, wellness, well-being, life quality are up at the front of what patients tell us they want. And we can't tell them anything from a gorgeously done clinical trial that came out with morbidity and mortality. Now, with very little effort and very little added funds, but simply someone being a strong advocate, those can easily be a secondary endpoint so that I could tell the patient, well, so many patients not only will not have a heart event or mortality, but so many will improve their functional state, et cetera. This comes up again and again now in our dealing with the elderly population and atrial fibrillation. We're worried about thrombotic risk and we're worried about bleeding risk. But what is it that the patients want from these trials? And we're not seeing these so-called soft endpoints. And they're not soft endpoints because they can be gathered very precisely. 
But I would hope that this is one of the things that we add to the clinical cardiovascular trials. I'll build on that because it's an anecdote. Just yesterday, I got on Facebook Messenger a message from a school teacher friend in Arizona who sent me this message about her mother and should she get a watchman. Now, I've never met the mother, don't know anything about the mother's health, but I picked up the phone and talked with this friend who I felt like, and we can all view it the lens, but they basically, without saying much why this 85-year-old woman should, you know, who uses a cane, and I had to infer, well, maybe they're worried about her falling. Maybe they'd like to get her off the anticoagulation, but they should be telling you that. And here's some questions to ask, because I can't weigh in on the care of that. But it's really, I think about the shortcut we could say is, we think it through. Here's this old lady. She's on blood thinner. I'm worried about her falling. I'm getting good at putting watchman in. I'm going to tell them I'm going to put a watchman in without all of those other things that, as we know, need to be considerations as the patient, as the daughter who cares about the patient. And the whys are important to all of our patients. But I think women often really want to know, why do you think this is better than what we're doing? And we need to step up and be able to provide that. And in addition to the sex and gender lens, I would just take a step back because it's related and all encompassing is the equity lens, right? Because the sex and gender lens that we look at, and particularly for those softer not the hard endpoints like death, myocardial infarction, vary by culture, neighborhood, geography, race, ethnicity, and being able to look. And if we think we don't know enough about women with heart disease, we really don't know much about Native American women and heart disease and what their values are or African American women. And so how do we bring an advocate to bring those conversations into the endpoints that we can then use and actually practice with? And that gets to trying to diversify the healthcare workforce as well, because I think that would help accelerate that. But the lens through which we have looked at healthcare has been a very undiverse lens for a millennia. And it's really only in the past hundred years that women have been interpreting the lens and what they're looking at. And I think that does speak to why heart disease in women has come to the fore, because somebody like Nanette Winger has been looking at it through a lens that asks questions that needed to be asked. The luxury that I have in my practice site, which is an inner city hospital in Atlanta, is that I probably have the luxury of seeing the most diverse population. I think working with six, five or six fellows in the fellows clinic, in a half day clinic, we will probably use the translator service 10 or 12 times from the usual Spanish to Aramaic, et cetera, to Bengali. And because of that, and because we have the luxury of a translator who provides us with the adjectives and adverbs that the patient gives us, and for those of you who are working with non-English speakers, I encourage you to use the translator service rather than a family member. And let me give you an example. I have the luxury of having a number of fellows who are Arabic speaking and a number of patients, but particularly women patients who are non-English speaking, whose language is Arabic, and who come with a son or a husband, typically to clinic. And when we didn't have the luxury of the translator service a few years back, and I would give instructions about the tests and about the medications, apparently they were translated perfectly. 
But when I gave instructions about diet and physical activity, I could see the fellows standing behind the family member and shaking his or her head, know that that translation was not what I said. And particularly what I must have done is to violate a cultural norm about activity or diet. But I think that what we have to do is to use the translator service to raise the difference in the cultural norms and to raise the things that we think are important and explain why and how that can fit into the family context. And it will be important for the family members as well as the patients to realize that in the treatment of disease, that lifestyle becomes a very important contribution. But I think this has been a learning curve for me, and it has influenced the way I interact with family members as well, because so many of them for our non-English speaking patients will come with a family member just to help them physically guide them through the hospital. But what we have to realize is that for some of our standard recommendations, sodium-restricted diet, calorie-restricted diet, physical activity, that we are violating cultural norms. And therefore, our persuasion has to be much more measured but intense. So speaking about advocacy and health equity, Dr. Wenger, perhaps one of my favorite stories I've read about you is from your early career. And if you don't mind, I'm going to quote the story here. I arrived in 1958 and had never lived in a segregated environment. We had the Grady's, then separated facilities for black and white patients. And as chief of the cardiac clinic, I addressed every patient as Mr., Mrs., or Miss, regardless of race. That was against the rules. People reported me, and I spent quite a lot of time in the hospital superintendent's office discussing my interactions with patients. I refused to do what Southern Convention required, and so he and I agreed that we'd be seeing a lot of each other. So this speaks to the person you are and the way you've approached your career. You've done so much in the space of women's health advocacy, but also with respect to health equity and diversity in cardiovascular care. You discussed a little bit about cultural norms, but where do you think the most important avenues for change within the current field of cardiology lies? Let me go back to those early years. And all of us have a set of core values. I think they're transmitted predominantly through our family and a great deal through our faith. And once you are grounded in certain appropriateness and inappropriateness behaviors, there's a line you will not cross. And I think essentially I earned my spurs advocating for the equity in the treatment of the patients in my clinic. And I expect that it's likely because of that, that I really never had the gender challenge because they were just a handful of us who were women. But I had made my stand on something that was much more important than being a woman faculty member in a group of men. I had made my stand in the way we treat patients and the way we care for patients. And as someone said, once you do that, a lot of the other, today we call them microaggressions, but a lot of the other microaggressions fall by the side. And I never really had much trouble with my colleagues, or if I did, I had enough stature within the community at the medical school and the hospital that I could shrug it off and say it was their problem, not mine. 
But I expect that we will have to learn a great deal about cultural diversity. And we will have to learn how to care for the underserved. That's been my career for over half a century. So I know the problems of food deserts and of non-safe areas for walking and the like. But they're now magnified with the whole issue of air pollution and all the other things. We have to take that under our medical umbrella and realize that's part of what we have to do. And that for the patients that we care for who have a variety of addictions, that this is something that we have to see that gets addressed, although that's not our purview, because that impacts their medical illness. We have to see for the people who are unhoused that we get them to some safe place so that we have to have a role in the community working with our elected officials working with our state legislature. And I think most of you have in your states what we have in Atlanta. We have Doctor's Day at the Capitol, and they invite us to come down. And in the past, I had used my Doctor's Day platform to talk about women and heart disease and why we should be doing more. But I expect now I'm probably going to have to increase the diversity aspect and the challenges that we have as an Atlanta community in assuring health equity for our population. We are doing a fabulous job at the hospital. I'm seeing more and more patients in my clinic who've had both COVID vaccines, about which I'm very excited. And we've managed to get to the underserved population. But I think that once you get out of the big city, that is a problem in rural Georgia that we will have to work very hard to mitigate. And I'll just build on as people are talking about how are they individually going to advance equity. Building on what Nanette said, she led with her core values and was consistent and it was about the patients. And we can all get really hot under the collar about something that we firmly believe in and that we think that needs to go forward and that maybe other people are either resisting or not going forward with us. But I have found, and certainly as spending a decade as Mayo Clinic's Director for Diversity and Inclusion, some of the ways that I found, particularly with colleagues who are involved in healthcare and people who are good people, they may disagree with you or have different priorities, perhaps. But when you can bring it back to the core values of individuals, of optimal patient care, of a shared advance, and I give an experience that happened literally within a month of me taking that position. And I was sitting with a dad at a pool watching our boys warm up before a swim meet. And he asked me, he was an engineer at Mayo, and he turned to me and he asked me, how's the new job, the new role and everything? And I literally, we'd had one banter back and forth and he goes, but I want to be able to hire the best. It came out of nowhere to me. And again, this is a dad. I need to have a relationship with him. He is also a worker at Mayo Clinic. And I am thinking that probably in his engineering shop, it's all men and probably all white and Asian men. And those are the best. And so it took me a minute, but I reeled it back and I started talking about some of the business case for why diverse voices. And it was all about our patients. And we had a nice conversation. And he said, Sharon, thank you so much. If you can give me the words to explain to my colleagues that report to me about how this meets the needs of our patients, it's golden because they all get that. All you need to do for me is connect the dots up till that. So in whatever organization that you are in, and even if you were speaking to completely non-medical or people who are pretty far from the patient care, 
helping them connect the dots because it may be very clear to those of us who are in the middle of it that it's a clear shot. Now, can't you see why doing this would be better for that? And I think that we need to, if we really want to succeed, help our colleagues and friends by showing them the dots, like connecting them in front of them, because good people will usually see and come along with you. And that's just a strategy. And it was one that was so clear because what could have been a really uncomfortable swim meet did turned out to be, here's this guy who's one of my allies. I'm walking away and here's this engineer going back to engineering to increase diversity at Mayo Clinic. But we have to be patient because I can tell you that's triggering to somebody involved in diversity inclusion. I want to be able to hire the best. Like you can go either way with that one. And fortunately, I had a colleague and a friend who wanted to hear more. I expect that with the interview of the British Royals this past week, that this is going to surface because it, it has now come really out in terms of the public discourse. It is all over the media and people are weighing in on it with varying intensity on both sides of the pond. But I expect that rather than seeing divisiveness in this, we should work very hard to turn this around and to say that if something like this becomes a challenge for a royal family, how is it that we can limit this, mitigate this, turn it around within our particular academic and patient care facility? Don't take sides. But let's use this as part of the discussion, because obviously it occurs at all levels. And I think it's a very important discussion for everyone to have. Absolutely. Thank you both so much. You're both such beacons for all of us who are interested in this area and who are passionate about moving health equities forward. I want to take the time to transition a little bit to your experience as mentors. So personally, I feel that oftentimes American culture tends to promote feminism as the ability of a few strong women to excel and at the expense sometimes of other women, both by pitting women against each other and also by ignoring structural barriers that do impact all women. And what I find so unbelievably impressive about both of your careers is that you've been able to excel while simultaneously addressing those structural barriers and empowering other women along the way. And so something that I was hoping you could give us a little bit of advice on is both your experience of mentorship and how women early in their careers can try to foster these type of relationships to empower each other, support each other, and grow this field forward. I think in general, women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. All right. Mentorship is great. And it's important to have different types of mentors. I think the days of having a single mentor, which is sort of implied a research mentor and a career mentor is having a kitchen cabinet of mentors that may change over time of the career. So somebody who really is a skill-based and might be teach you a skill, mentor me into being able to do this particular, you know, how to do clinical trials, for instance. I don't necessarily need a mentor to do that once I've learned to do that, but that will be a very important person. There are peer people outside of our disciplines who can look back and give you some perspective, like a non-cardiologist or a cardiologist at another institution. And I think that's where, honestly, both as a role model and as a cardiologist outside of my institution, Nanette has really served as a mentor and a sponsor for me. But I think when it comes down to sponsorship, that is where we mentor women, they gain lots of skills, and then they go out into an environment which is still not welcoming and in fact may put up blockades. 
And so it is the role of people. And I think I have very intentionally taken on that role over the past 15 years or so of being more of a sponsor than a mentor. I still mentor a lot, but I think looking at how to really work with that individual to open the door. And by sponsorship, that means you don't just help them with the career. It's much more of a mutually beneficial. Those women, and it's mainly women that I sponsor, often really help me in accelerating my own work or bring a skill into me that I don't have. For instance, I'm both a mentor and a sponsor for Dr. Marisha Tweet here at Mayo, who I do the SCAD research. She's got an engineering and math background. And so when we were first starting and really had no resources to be able to teach her and provide her lots of opportunities, but I got free statistics from her because of her skill set. And that's a way to build that sort of relationship of trust. Because when I then go outside of the department or outside of Mayo or stand up in a department meeting and say, Dr. Marisha Tweet should be one of our colleagues or she should be ready for that. I know she's not going to let me down. I'm not just putting out her name. I am sponsoring her. I also feel the responsibility. And I think that's that next level. And I think that the other thing I will say is Dr. Tweet was brought to me by a male interventional cardiology fellow who said, Dr. Hayes, you have to meet Dr. Tweet. She was a first year medicine resident rotating in the CCU. And he said, you've got to meet her. She has to be a cardiologist. He was a great mentor because he mentored her through on her first project. And I was mentoring him on a project. And one of the other things is medical students can mentor. And I think starting the pattern of mentoring and not just waiting for it to come to you, but realizing at every level, we can give it back. And that's a great skill to learn as well. So I'd love to hear how intentional or how serendipitous a lot of the mentoring that Nanette has done over the years. I think it was serendipitous for me and now much more focused and deliberate and focused on sponsorship, particularly for women. Well, early on, I had no women mentors. And fortunately, I had a number of both mentors and sponsors who were men and who did not have gender bias. Otherwise, there's no way I think I would have gotten to where I am today. But I realized that the women coming along were very much in a minority, represented initially in medical school and then in the residency programs, and still to a great extent in cardiology. So I have worked very hard to mentor women, but I've mentored men as well. And I think if I look at the procession coming in and out of my office from day to day, they're predominantly women, but a sizable number of men as well. But we started something at Emory early on when we had a handful of women faculty in cardiology and were trying to attract more women. And we started a women in cardiology group at Emory before it became fashionable to have that. We've had it for decades. And in the days when drug companies' sponsorship was legal, many of the pharmaceutical companies would sponsor our dinners, and we had monthly or quarterly dinners at restaurants. And there was always a topic, and it varied depending on the group. I remember there was a session that was involved with being a fellow while you're pregnant, and what were the issues? And that was at the time when the radiation issues were being raised. But then when the pharmaceutical sponsorship became off limits, I basically hosted the women in my home. And now we have a women in cardiology group that meets on a monthly basis 
And it's now run by the fellows, by the women fellows, and they pick their topics. We've been doing it on Zoom, obviously, for the past year. But previously, we went to various people's homes and shared a meal together, which is a very bonding experience. And I recommend it to you once we get the in-person back again. But our topics for the women in cardiology have ranged from how you negotiate a contract, what are the legal advice that you need, how do you prepare your packet for promotion, how do you select other mentors, what do you do when you're looking for a job. And the most recent one was a woman who's just recently had her second child, and she was talking about what did she do about breast pumping at the various hospitals and how many lactation rooms there were at the various sites of the hospital. And it showed me that there was one hospital in our system that was very much lacking, and that was an area that we had to go to. So the mentoring can be, as one of the women put it, from the sublime to the ridiculous, but it's all very important. But the sponsorship is even more important. And now for the two major organizations, the American Heart Association, the American College of Cardiology, there is unquestionably on every group, on every panel, at every meeting, a gender diversity issue, a foreign and native area, representation of underrepresented minorities. And several of the past presidents, both of the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology, say they will not serve on a panel on which there is not at least one woman. I think the one woman is not good. You need at least two women to support each other. Excellent. Thank you. So going back in your career, and we can start first with you, Dr. Hayes, is there anything that you would have done differently? Well, so many things. I think that I would have been a cardiologist. I think that's the thing where I almost diverged off. That was one of those, wow, I I, I dodged that bullet. I'm glad I did what I did. I think where I might have done things differently, I, unlike my colleague, Dr. Wenger, I was a rather late bloomer in terms of academic promotion. I very much took a step back willingly, not because I had to, I could have hired more help, but I pulled back from doing research early in my career enough, not just pulled back and slowed down. I got out of it for a few years. And what I realized when I was ready to go back in, I had got enough out that I was having to backtrack a little bit and ask people for help who looked at me like, you're a mid-career person, you should know that. And so the advice that I give, this wasn't a terrible mistake, but what I tell young women, not just in cardiology, and they look at me and say, really, do I have to do that? I No, you don't have to have four or five first author papers every year while you're having babies and trying to do that. But having one or two middle author papers and staying in the mix with your colleagues is going to be really important because you can still bring a valuable contribution to that. And I found that me having to get back in the groove was a big lift. And I think some colleagues had written me off a little bit as well here at Mayo that just wasn't what I was interested in. So it was another way. So I guess if you're interested, and this would be for cardio nerds who are interested in an academic career, and particularly women who may feel a lot of pull because it is really hard to stay in the mix when you're managing and you've got a professional spouse, but keeping that in the priority. So I think if I had to do, and I speak to this because the acceleration of my, I told you my husband is a a cardiologist as well. And I had seen in a publication, someone track their publication rate over time. So I put my husband's and mine on a timeline that had our babies and our marriage and our promotions on there. And if you look at the uptick, it's right around when my oldest went to college. And she says, wow, when I got out of the house, it was a really good year for you, mom. 
And it was academically. And I think that it speaks to my husband's publication rate did not change with birth. In fact, the year we got married was a really good year for him. I hope from a marital standpoint, but he had a lot of publications. So I looked in a, in a very concrete way how I took more, much more of a step back than my spouse, who was also a cardiologist. And that I would change if I had to go back, because I think I could have changed without harm to me. Well, possibly, probably, I might have gone in a somewhat different direction. Early on, again, my three daughters are just five years apart among them. So I had the baby time, but my philosophy at the time was hire the universe. And anything that I thought other people could do better than I could, I hired them to do it. So that the time that I spent at home was family time and the like. But I think that think of what you do and think of what someone else can do as well as or better and essentially learn to delegate. That's a very important part. But I think that if more variety had been available to me, I might have done more in a different area in cardiology. I had an interesting time in the cath lab, but I didn't find it satisfying. This was far pre-intervention, et cetera. And the cath that I did, again, was during my training, was primarily on patients with mitral stenosis. And I don't know whether any of you have ever read of what we used to do in the days before arterial catheterization became prominent. And what we did in order to get a left atrial pressure was to pass a rigid bronchoscope and through the bronchoscope between the bronchial cartilages to directly puncture the left atrium, get our pressures, et cetera, in terms of evaluating the patient for surgery. And I'm not sure whether it was a more challenging cath for the patient or for the operator, but it did not make me fall in love with the cath lab. I think watching the cath lab of today and the phenomenal things that are happening, particularly in the structural area, I think that might have piqued my interest. But I really don't know. It's hard to say in retrospect. But I always wanted to do cardiology because when I started is what I call the first golden age of cardiology, because suddenly we were beginning to make diagnoses and to transfer the physiology laboratory to the bedside. And rather than call it congenital heart disease, because the surgeons were doing something with some of the congenital heart diseases, we had to have the skills to diagnose the particular heart disease. As mitral valve surgery and aortic valve surgery came about, we had to be precise in terms of saying, what are the measurements that we need to give to our surgical colleagues? And I give the surgeons the major credit for advancing some of these fields because not given the possibility of treatment, there was not that much of an interest in the precision of diagnosis. And I think we're seeing it now as well, a few of the instances that I've shown you. Once we have a therapy, the precision of the diagnosis becomes so much more important. What you have to do is to change your focus and to realize that you are going to be in for a lifelong period of learning. And please don't ever do for years and years what you learned during your fellowship because you'll become a dinosaur. That's really helpful advice. And Dr. Hayes, I feel like your story particularly resonates with me because I also have a partner who's a cardiologist and some of the same considerations have also come up for us. But can you tell us, starting with Dr. Winger, what are you most proud of in your career looking back? 
I think I've said this in a couple of interviews in the past. And what I'm most proud of is what I've done during my career. And that is a very happy and long, successful marriage and the raising of three wonderful daughters. Because that was as challenging and as satisfying as anything that I've done in medicine. But for my career, I think the important thing is looking for a problem. And rather than whining about it, trying to find a solution for it. In the early years, I was very interested in exercise physiology, and we started cardiac rehabilitation. Now, as a matter of fact, I've put my toe back in the water again, because the whole concept of home-based rehabilitation or smartphone-based rehabilitation is fascinating to me. So I may be returning to my very early roots. But then I did most of my career with women in heart disease. But somewhat later on, I realized that the same problems that existed for women as compared with men were elderly compared with younger. And I've devoted a fair bit of attention to geriatric cardiology. And of course, there's the intersection because women are the predominant elderly population. They have so much of their cardiovascular disease at elderly age. So the two of them are natural. But I still am a major advocate to ensure equity for our elderly population, to see that they're included in the clinical trials, to see that they're included in the trials of new drug therapy. And as a matter of fact, in the next several weeks, the FDA is going to be hosting a panel on cardiovascular drugs and drug and device testing in the elderly. So it's come to the forefront as well. I would echo. I think that when I reflect on my career aspect, I think I'm proud of the legacy I'm leaving with in terms of patient advocates. Honestly, I feel like having trained women with heart disease every year who are not my patients to go out and be advocates. And for those of you who listen to the Women Heart podcast, these are remarkable women and that I have even a small part of invigorating or energizing them. I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of the mentees. I'm less proud of my science. I know it's important, but honestly, it is the relationships because that's probably more where I center. So I'm really proud of those who I have worked with and their successes. And I, like Nanette, am really proud of still being married to the same man for many decades and for having children who are upstanding citizens and are happy and want to speak to me. Yeah, those are things I'm really proud of because you may take some of those things for granted and then you realize this does not happen completely without effort. And even if you are the perfect parent and the perfect spouse, things don't work out. So I am proud, but also grateful because I realize that some of it is good luck to find the right people and to end up. So yeah, proud and grateful. I love that. That's wonderful. I know Sonia and I could just listen to you both talk all day, but I assume you have some other things to do. So I just want to finish out with one more question for you. You both serve as such inspiration for countless physicians, including all of us here on the podcast today. So if there's anything else, any pearls that you can provide, we'd just like to end with any advice that you have for early career cardiologists, especially those of us who are interested in advocacy and health equities. I would start by just saying to start small and dip your toe in the water of some of these different opportunities. If you're interested in heart failure, you're interested in heart disease in women, you're interested in valve disease, if you're interested in patient advocacy, but don't even know where to start, you don't have to start with advocacy by marching on the Capitol. 
you can start by advocating for your own individual patients in your office, but you could also find out, well, I'm interested in amyloid. Well, there is going to be a patient group or a professional group, which may be more to your T, that you can volunteer to do something small and get involved and learn from those people. And I think the other tip is how much I have learned from patients that have made me a better physician, not just about their conditions, but about how they navigate through illness. And so listening to your patients, and I feel like I've truly had a privilege to listen to patients who are not my patients, because my own patients, they're not going to tell me probably the real truth. But if you have opportunities, don't laugh off when a patient or a family member even says, this doctor told me this, or I heard this. This is an amazing doctor. Well, listen, why is that doctor so amazing? Or why did you think that doctor failed you? Because the answer you get from your mom or your sister or a patient of somebody else may very much inform you as it has me is like, wow, I've done that. I've said that. And I had no idea it would land that way on a patient. So continuing to learn from our patients would be the other tip. Well, part of it is why I am so excited by cardio nerds. First, I love your name because I think it makes people smile and enter into your space, which is very, very important. But secondly, you've done the outreach to so many groups, to your peers, to the community, etc., And what you have done within and among CardioNerds, I think, can be a very interesting model for what you do later in life, because you're examining not only the strictly academic, you're examining interrelationships, community challenges, etc. Continue what you're doing, expand your group, just continue the high quality and dedication that you've done and expand it to the other areas of your clinical practice. I will say that cardio nerds are nothing without the leaders, role models, and visionaries like you both. Dr. Wenger, Dr. Hayes, we just want to thank you both so much for spending this afternoon with us, sharing your stories and giving us such helpful advice. And most importantly, we want to thank you for being such inspiring role models and for carving the path in women's cardiovascular disease. Thank you. And everyone have a great rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me spend another hour plus with Nanette Wenger. Always a pleasure.